today I am going to lead our service, and I invite you to engage with the journey. I've asked the group that leads our Sunday mornings to try some new things and to try some new things over the next couple of weeks and months. So uh, just kind of go with it, and we'll gather feedback as to whether some of our new liturgy elements are effective in helping us to see God as he is a little bit more clearly. So we are a gathered community of people who worship God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us begin our focus. I'm going to read to you Psalm 103, and I'm going to ask you afterwards, what traits about God stood out to you? So Psalm 103, with all my heart, I praise the Lord, and with all I am, I praise his holy name. With all my heart, I praise the Lord. I will never forget how kind he has been. The Lord forgives our sins, heals us when we are sick, and protects us from death. His kindness and love are a crown on our heads. Each day that we live, he provides for our needs and gives us the strength of a young eagle. For all who are mistreated, the Lord brings justice. He taught his law to Moses and showed all Israel what he could do. The Lord is merciful. He is kind and patient, and his love never fails. The Lord won't be angry and point out our sins. He doesn't punish us as our sins deserve. How great is God's love for all who worship him, greater than the distance between heaven and earth. How far has the Lord taken our sins from us? Farther than the distance from east to west. Just as parents are kind to their children, the Lord is kind to all who worship him because he knows we are made of dust. We humans are like grass or wild flowers that quickly bloom, but a scorching wind blows and they quickly wither to be forgotten forever. The Lord is always kind to those who worship him. He keeps his promises to their descendants who faithfully obey him. The Lord has set up his kingdom in heaven and he rules the whole creation. All of you mighty angels, who obey God's commands, come and praise your Lord. All of you thousands who serve and obey God, come and praise your Lord. All of God's creation and all that he rules, come and praise your Lord. With all my heart, I will praise the Lord. Anything about that passage that caught your attention or what traits of God stood out to you? It seems like he's really it's like specific about things that are basic and really matter to us things about our survival that he's very considerate of what we actually need i was impressed with his compassion his gentleness his concern it, it comes up in verse 8 it comes up again in verse 13 and that just reaches into my heart others for me always you know the psalm speaks about love and that god is love and he he loves us outrageously and he fills us with love that enables us to love others without judgment without condition then let me open let me offer a prayer father God, our Father, and Lord Jesus Christ, we gather together to honor you and to connect with you.
as we connect with each other. Lord, we remind ourselves that you love, that your love is kind, your love is gentle, your love expresses compassion, your love expresses concern. And as the passage said, your love is about restoring justice. Thank you that you are this way. And Father, I also know we do these things because of who you are. You want us to see you clearly, to see your goodness, your holiness, your all-power, your all-knowing, your all-presence creator. And as we see you clearly, you would desire that our hearts and our behaviors would echo that on earth. So, Lord, this morning, help us to see you clearly. And then speak to our character, affect our character, that we would behave as you would have us behave. So, we love you, and we bless you. Amen. All right. So, good morning. If you are joining us on podcast, welcome. My name is Curtis, and today's message is called, The Struggle with Family. I was talking to Randy Jaspers this past week. He is our regional minister, and we got on the subject of Remembrance Day in Canada as compared to Memorial Day and Veterans Day in the U.S. In the U.S., Memorial Day is in May and Veterans Day is in November. And as their nation has two different days, where we only have one day, we celebrate the days differently. The next day, I came across an article about two U.S.-based retailers that were offering Remembrance Day sales in Canada this year, a practice one analyst calls horrible and disrespectful. Retail analyst and consultant Bruce Winter told CTV News that Canadians are very sensitive about the commercialization of this sacred day. Certainly in Canada, it's been taboo to have any type of sale on Remembrance Day, for the obvious reason that we are remembering our fallen soldiers. The article pointed out that this was a novice mistake or a mistake made in ignorance, not understanding that the cultures are different and we value some things differently. So this article was written by Patrick Kane at ctvnews.ca, and I can send you the full article if you'd like to read it. For me, the incident highlights that we are a different culture, a different group of people than our big brother to the South. And Remembrance Day sales isn't what we do here. It goes against our values. The passage we're gonna look at today highlights the difficulty when two different cultures, two different values come together and have to be together. So we're gonna read from Galatians chapter two, verses 1 to 10, and I invite you to open up your Bible to it or turn on your app. As you do that, let me remind you where we are in this book. Paul is working to defend his gospel message to the Galatian churches. Some folks have been leading people away from Jesus by teaching that although they are saved by grace, to keep growing and to experience the full blessings of God, you need to become Jews. They need to keep the ways of the law. They need to keep some religious holidays. And they need to be, if you're a male, you need to be circumcised. The issue at stake is 
There is one family of God. Jesus is the rightful ruler of the earth. All authority has been given to him. His disciples make up one family. So what does it mean to be part of that family? How do you become part of that family and participate in the rescue and the blessings of God that is part of that family? Last week, we read Paul's summary of how he came to learn the gospel message, which is that we are saved by grace and brought into the family by God's grace and blessed by God's grace. And he said he never studied under an apostle, which would otherwise suggest he perhaps got it wrong. And as well, we saw that Paul's own life experience with God's grace resulted in his transformation, his blessing, and his rescue. So Paul's message is, grace is it. This week, Paul is going to continue explaining his journey. I'm going to read Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. Then, after 14 years, I went up to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along as well. I went in response to a revelation and, meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he is a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. As for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they are makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognized I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, just as Peter had been to the Jews. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the Jews, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. Peter, James, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the Jews. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. So as a first note, Paul sounds like he is speaking disrespectfully about Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John, the three guys who hung around Jesus the most. He refers to them as those esteemed as leaders, or in some translations, those who seem to be leaders, or those reputed to be the pillars. He's not trying to insult them. He's disagreeing with the opinion that these three should be idolized. He's acknowledging their role and their importance, but he's not buying into the idea that we should be infatuated by them. We know he honors them because he went and reviewed his message with them, so he supports their authority. And we also know Peter, James, and John themselves are not promoting their own importance. That's out of their character. The adulation is coming from some other group. And perhaps it's the group that's been promoting the importance of becoming a Jew. 
Look, our leaders, our pillars are all Jews. Being a Jew is important. You must honor our leaders. You must become a Jew. Who is really at the head of this whole mission, this whole story? Is it these three? No. It's Jesus himself. And that's been Paul's point all along. Sometimes in practice, we forget this. We start to put too much focus on a teacher or a preacher or a leader. And it's very hard to bring unity to a church when that happens. I mean, I want all of you to learn to follow Jesus, but not Jesus as interpreted by Curtis, or Jesus as interpreted by Tim Keller or Tom Wright, or put in whatever teacher you like to listen to. I read one commentary that suggested Paul is very subtly saying, I am not a pawn for other people. Are you? He's very subtly suggesting you need to think for yourselves, and you haven't been. You've instead become a pawn for somebody else's teaching or belief system or priorities. So perhaps the first question to ask is, what is your engagement with Jesus like? As compared to teachers or authors or preachers, what is your engagement directly with Jesus like? I highlight that Paul did submit his teaching to the leaders for evaluation. He never did claim to be above them or against them. If we reread the first couple verses, after 14 years, I went up to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along. I went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. The subject of Titus not being circumcised is at the heart of the question about who can be included in God's family. And I was thinking the other day, if this discussion had gone in a different direction, we would be in a Jewish synagogue right now, and we would be Jews. In the mind of every Jew, and according to Old Testament teaching as they understood it at that point, to participate in God's covenant, to be a member of God's family, a man had to be circumcised. It was the sign of the covenant. It was the sign to indicate who you were and that you belonged to God. How do you know who you are? How do you know who you are and where you belong? So who are you? You might think about your abilities. Perhaps you've done a personality assessment test at some point. You will probably think back to your own experiences in life and how they made you who you are. That's part of your origin story. In all of our superhero movies, there is an origin story. We learn how this person came to have their unique powers, and we learn why they do what they do. And many superheroes feel called to do good because of the bad that happened to them before. So Batman, 
does what he does because the murder of his parents. Captain America was bullied when he was small and young. Iron Man, he discovered the evil that his weapons manufacturing empire caused and that drives them to do good. You have your own origin story that shapes your identity. You know, I will, and you can fill in the blank, I will always have food on the table because we did not have food growing up. Or I will always use money to help the poor because I recognize how fortunate I was. Or again, you fill in the blank. You are motivated to do something because of your origin story. It's part of your identity. For every Jew, their origin story started with Abraham. God said he would make the children of Abraham to be how he would bless the world. That was their identity. They were the people of God. And every family who wanted to be part of this plan would have all the males carry the sign of circumcision. That is how they knew they belonged to God's family. And now here was Paul showing by the example of Titus that this was no longer true. Titus was part of the family, but he did not carry the sign of the covenant. He was not of the family, but now he is part of the family. Some of you are thinking, that sounds great. What's the problem? You know, diversity. The problem is, in one sense, they thought they were disobeying God. And in another sense, it's about the role that family plays in our life. Family are those people who share a special loyalty, a special intimacy. They are united by something, and it could be a shared value system, a shared common ancestor, a shared love. Family answers the question, where do I belong? To whom do I belong? Who is reliable? Who loves me as I am and supports me as I try to be me. And you can see, I'm using the term family in a very large sense, not in a mated couple sense. Family is, who can I rest with and know that they've got my back as I seek to do what I feel called to do with my life? Family is supposed to help us live out who we are. I sometimes get caught up with a TV show or a movie that captures family really well. And where's Amanda? I don't see Amanda. There she is, woo! Girl, this is for you. I think Star Trek The Next Generation caught the idea of family really well. Actually, I think that show caught the idea of church really well. Now, I've been watching this on TV lately, so it's all in my mind. But in Star Trek The Next Generation, Everybody is uniquely themselves, and they are relied on in their uniqueness. And then together, they journey, engaging whatever life has for them to discover. It's a beautiful image. Most sitcoms are based on the idea of family and a new type of family. Having a family is a need for us. For those first Jewish Christians, all of a sudden, People were put into their family that disagreed with their understanding of their identity. You know, a Romulan, the enemy, added to the bridge of the empire. This doesn't fit. And they're asking themselves, is this really what God wanted us to be? 
How can we be faithful to God and include this new group of people who are a different people? Will they help us to be us? Or are we going to have to become something else? The whole experience would shake their identity and make them feel kind of lost. Like, who are we now if we are not uniquely us? Think of someone you have found difficult to be yourself around. Someone you find difficult to kind of rest with. Like, you find it difficult to rest when they are around. You're not sure that they support you for being you. They challenge what you think are just obvious truths and priorities. And now these people are in your family. They're on your couch at home at night when you want to watch TV. You would naturally feel, for a while, more guarded. You might find it difficult to kind of come down and rest and to be yourself. You might feel lost and kind of undefined. What would you do? Would you resist it and just not be welcoming? Would you try to force them to change so that you can be you? Would you leave and go try to find a new family elsewhere? That's difficult when Jesus says there's one family. What would you do? In Christ's family, sometimes we encounter people that we find difficult. One practice I've begun doing is to pray for that person's success and well-being. You know, if someone annoys me, like I always feel challenged or I always feel defensive when I'm around them, I've begun to start praying for them. And I pray not that God will change them or fix them or make them right. I pray that God will bless them, that God will bless their well-being and that they will do and be what God has designed them to be and do. Who am I to judge another man's servant? Do you know that phrase? That comes from Romans 14, which writes, Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, a servant stands or falls, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. The other people in the family belong to Jesus. They're his servant. So this passage goes on and begins to point us to the solution which is letting people be free to do the task God calls them to do. So back to verse 6. As for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognized I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, just as Peter had been to the Jews. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the Jews, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Peter, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship as they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the Jews. You are built to work with a different group of people. There can be unity, even though we have different approaches and different values, as we do the work God has given us to do. You are not required to give up your unique identity to become part of the church. 
and the new folks who join us with their own origin story and their unique identity and their different approach to a fighting crime, their presence does not require that we give up our identity when they join. We have unique we identities and they both now are present and belong. The theology of this is easy. The practice of this is very difficult. But there's more. Verse 10. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. At first reading, it sounds like Peter was to make sure that Paul collected money and gives it to the poor. There had been a famine that hit Jerusalem, and you can read that in the book of Acts around chapter 14. If you read through the New Testament letters, especially kind of in a row, you'll find this little side story in many of the books about collecting and giving money for the churches in Jerusalem that were starving. Just kind of this little side story that weaves through the New Testament. So the term, the poor, can mean those financially impoverished. However, it can also refer to the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. The term has the nuance of humility and obedience and religious devotion to God. I read that those first Jewish Christians sometimes referred to themselves as those of the way, but also the poor. So remember the poor. Remember those Christian Jews. And the instruction was to remember them, which means keep them in mind with affection or have a heart that is supportive of them, which is much larger than just make sure you collect some money for them. So as Paul is given the blessing to pursue his ministry with the Gentiles, he is also encouraged to keep the Jewish Christians in his heart you still have a role to support these other folks with a different origin story, with a different approach to crime fighting. Work for their well-being. Don't get in the way of this ministry, which goes against an attitude of, I'm going to go do this, bye-bye. I encountered a formula this week that I think is relevant to this. The formula is freedom equals responsibility equals love. Freedom equals responsibility equals love. Let me explain. So I learned this from the book Boundaries by Henry Cloud and John Townsend, and it's on a chapter in talking with teens about social media and digital media. But I think the principle is much greater than that. So the authors write, I am giving you freedom. With freedom comes responsibility. If you are responsible with your freedom, you will be given more freedom. If you are not responsible, some freedom will be taken away. Responsibility will be evaluated on whether you use your freedom to love others or yourself or to hurt others or yourself. If you use social media to hurt someone, your freedom will be reduced. If you use social media to show love to someone or to yourself, your freedom will be increased. So very clear. And I wondered if that is not a principle that God uses in other areas of our life. You are given freedom in this family to run your own agenda. 
If you love others with it, more freedom will be given to you. If you hurt others, your freedom will be diminished. And I see it here with Paul. You are free to do your ministry with the Gentiles, but you still have a responsibility to show love to the Jews. And this principle would be enforced and is enforced by God himself. So let me conclude. There is one Lord, and we are all part of his his family. There can be a struggle with family. In Paul's example, he lays his message down before the leaders in Jerusalem for their evaluation. But he's clear he follows Jesus, not the teachings from humans. It is hard to bring unity when we are following someone other than Jesus himself. So what is your engagement with Jesus like compared to teachers or authors or other preachers? What is your engagement directly with Jesus like? In his practice, Paul journeys with Titus, an uncircumcised Gentile, and he insists that the gospel means these folks with a different origin story are now part of the family. How do you respond when someone is added to the family who seems to challenge your identity or challenge where you belong? Pray for their well-being. They are God's servant with a different task to do. And Paul is blessed to pursue the ministry he was called to do, but he is asked to remember other folks in the family, still be a support to them. Freedom comes with responsibility which is measured in expressions of love to others. So let me ask, what has caught your attention in this passage? Passage. What has caught your attention in this passage? I think you're absolutely right that that, that little dynamic that, oh, this person is different from me, so maybe they're, they're dangerous and maybe I'm not safe with them and maybe I should distance myself, that us-them feeling is so... It's, it's, I think it's universal to humans. It's, yeah. it's, I mean, to some extent, it's part of how we keep ourselves safe by going, that person, I don't understand that maybe they actually aren't safe. Like, that's kind of a gut reaction. And I think that we have seen that little dynamic absolutely enthroned as a front piece of the political situation in the last couple of years, where this whole, like, whoa, them, us, like, like this, this, everybody's splitting into camps where they are, um, very much trying to only be with people who are exactly like them and there's just a very a lot of animosity um like we've seen that playing out we've seen how it's going it's not going well <laughs> yes worldwide or society or in neighborhoods or anything we're seeing this and it's fascinating to me if you look at jesus last night with his guys and he was saying look one of the main things you need to remember is that people are going to know that that the father actually sent me and that this whole thing is legitimate if they see you guys loving each other. And he knows that they've been fighting the whole three years he's been with them. Like, who's the greatest? And hey, maybe I'm going to sit next to him. Like, he knows it's not like they're all just kumbaya getting along. He knows this is going to be challenging, even for 12 guys, never mind worldwide movement. And so for him to say, this is so crucial that people are allowed to decide whether Jesus was actually a legitimate deal or not based on if they see you guys overcoming this automatic thing that humans all experience. And I think you're right that the only way 
that we can choose to overcome it really is if there's somebody else that we're trusting to make it okay. Because really, maybe those people aren't safe. And really, maybe they're not okay. And they really are not like us. So for the if we're trusting that God has brought us together into a family relationship, even though we are dissimilar, and we're trusting that he has something rich for us there, and we're trusting that he has something for us to learn and something for us to offer them. If we're trusting him to make this weirdness okay, this discomfort, we're willing to stick with that discomfort uh, until, until it can get worked out, that is one of the reasons that the church continues to, I think, exist in the middle of society is so that that can play out, which is not comfortable. By definition, it's not comfortable. But if we can trust that God has got something intentional going on, that is part of why we're here is to show that Jesus actually was for real. It's that important. I wanted to write it down and my page went flying on me. Yes, I agree. I'm going to write that down. <laughs> Others, what caught your attention in this passage? So it's funny because um, reading this passage before, I never had connected it quite so much with um, that idea of the new person in the family. And when you're a parent of small children, that is a very big part of yeah, yeah. Uh, the process of bringing babies home and, and see, and it's funny because the responses from people are ingrained from the very beginning this innate fear of this new person is coming and that intrinsically makes me less valuable and let my relationship more in jeopardy. Interesting. Yeah. 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 Very interesting. Yeah. Like there's less for me, right? Yeah. Yeah. Which is a threat to our identity, where we belong. Yep. The only thing necessary to be a Christian is faith in Jesus' work. The rest of it, if we choose other things to help us in our relationship with God, that's fine. That's great, and it should be encouraged. But the moment we try to impose any of those things on others, we're judging them. We're saying God is not up to the task of working with this person. I've got to pitch in and do it for him. <laughs> we need to just let others work out their relationship with God, with fear and trembling. And certainly we can encourage, but the moment we, like say, try to impose things on them because we think that's important, then we run into trouble. We are not being positive influences anymore. We're being negative influences. Let me offer a prayer and a blessing. God, our Father in heaven and our Lord Jesus Christ, you are so good to us. You heal us. You love us. You are soothing our open wounds. And you are shaping us to be uniquely suited to work you give us to do. You want us to have a purpose and to find a certain type of fulfillment. Thank you for your rescue. Thank you for the blessings you give us. And Lord, we also know that sometimes 
it's difficult to be around particular people or to have people part of our family. But we are all one family under you. So help us, Lord, to do this well, to pray for each other, and to honor, respect, and support other people in their ministry. Father, I am still struck with the idea of freedom and responsibility and love. And when we love others, our freedom grows. Lord, as we live this week, as we re-engage with our life, we seek to be a blessing to you and that we would be blessed by you and that we would represent you well, that we would be fully who we really are, people who worship Jesus and bring your healing love to this world. That is our prayer. To you belongs all glory and all praise and all thanks. Amen.